Well, as you're taking your seats, you can also open to that passage. Uh, Nathan read Mark 14, 26 through 52. We're continuing through the gospel according to Mark. Today marks about the one-year anniversary that we've been through the gospel according to Mark. And sadly, we only have, after this one, about five more sermons through Mark before we're done. I've loved it. I hope you guys have as well. Uh, Mark's gospel is, is so packed and to the point, and he doesn't waste a lot of words, and it's been so revealing about who Jesus is and who we are to live in light of him. That's, in fact, why we have been studying through the gospel according to Mark. We're looking at that question, who is Jesus? Because I think what you believe about Jesus is probably one of the most important things that, that you can do or believe. Jesus is the most important person that you can ever experience or know. That's what we believe at the Mountain Church. He changes everything. We're looking at a passage this morning where Jesus is completely abandoned. Have you ever felt like this? Completely abandoned. You try to reach out to your friends in a text, no one wants to get back to you. Facebook doesn't work. Your phone's dead. You feel all alone. I feel like I experience this daily with my one-year-old daughter, Addison, that I just walk out of the room and she melts down. She feels like I have abandoned her. This is the section of the gospel story where Jesus is betrayed, he's denied, he's abandoned. A young man even runs away naked from him. Everyone turns against Jesus. People that had been following him for three years, his disciples, crowds and people that, that love to flock to him and hear his teaching, abandon him. We're coming out of the section in which Mark described the Passover meal, and we looked at last week how Jesus is the fulfillment of that meal. He is our Passover lamb. He is the one whose blood shed for us forgives our sins. He is the one whose body on the cross given for us establishes a new community in which we can be with God forever and we can experience reconciliation. And, and we remember last week, after the Passover meal, and during certain portions of the meal, they would sing hymns. We see in, in verse 26, Mark starts out by saying, when they had sung a hymn, so it's after the meal, they leave the city of Jerusalem and they go out to what's called the Mount of Olives. And Jesus gives kind of a, a one-liner that would probably just crush the spirits. They'd be singing this meal, they'd be rejoicing in God, they'd be thanking him for his provision in the meal. And Jesus says, you will all fall away. Now just imagine hearing that, walking with Jesus for three years, experiencing deep fellowship with him, and he says that you're going to fall away. For he says, that is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You will all fall away. That word fall away first appears in the gospel according to Mark, in Mark chapter 4, verses 17. Remember that passage, the passage about the, the soils, where Jesus describes the seed, the word, falling on different people, different types of hearts, different soils. Some falls on the path, some falls on the thorns, some falls on rocky ground, and, and still other falls on good soil where it bears fruit and, and grows and multiplies. And that word fall away is the same word that Jesus used in, in Mark 4. He says, and these are the ones that are sown on the ground. The one, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. 
And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Same word. Jesus is saying, he's prophesying, the disciples are going to be like the rocky soil. When persecutions and trials and suffering comes, they will all fall away. One commentator said that Peter will have the rockiest time of all. I just thought it was ironic because Peter's name, in fact, means the rock. Jesus here quotes a passage from Zechariah 13, where he's describing the shepherd will be struck, I will strike the shepherd, and that I is referring to God. I, the Father, will, God the Father will strike the shepherd. Jesus wasn't struck or killed or gone to the cross because he wasn't powerful enough. Jesus didn't go to the cross, he didn't die because things got out of hand for him. And he was... The Romans, the soldiers were too much for him, and he was overpowered and crucified. Jesus was killed by the Father. He was sent by the Father. It was in his divine will and plan. God had a plan. And even in that plan, he says in verse 28, but after I am raised up, even in that confidence, he says, after I am struck, I will be raised up, and I will meet you in Galilee. Jesus is confident that he will raise from the, from the grave. And this phrase there, go ahead, does not mean that he's going to be the first to arrive, but he's going to resume a position of leadership and shepherding for his disciples. And I love the grace of Jesus in this moment. He's saying, you will all fall away. I'm going to be struck. You're all going to scatter, but I'm still going to be your shepherd. I'm still going to be your leader. I'm still going to be your guide. I love the grace of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus and the patience of Jesus because I am just like those disciples. We are just like the disciples, prone to wander, prone to scatter. Yet our, fail, our failures are not ultimate. God uses them, and he has grace upon us to strengthen us and to teach us, to humble us. Peter doesn't really get the memo, though. He's not picking up what Jesus is putting down. He doesn't like what Jesus says. He says, even though they will all fall away, I will not. You like that? I really resonate with Peter in this passage. Yeah, all those other guys, kind of, kind of half-hearted disciples, I agree, they might fall away, but Jesus, I won't. I'm not going to fall away. In Jewish thought and in Jewish culture, it was the whole idea of the Messiah was that he was going to come in and strike the nations and they would all be scattered. And he would arise and bring forth a a new Jerusalem. He would liberate the Jews from slavery and establish them to greatness. But for Jesus to be saying, no, the Messiah will be struck and my disciples will be scattered, that was, they didn't want to hear that. They did not like that. But Jesus uses this phrase. He says to him, truly. Like when Jesus uses that phrase, it's to emphasize something. It's a point of emphasis. I am telling you the truth. What I'm saying is truth. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. It's not only absolute, it's eminent. Like, this is, this is going to happen, Peter. This is going to happen. You will deny me. Again, Peter comes back. Mark even records it emphatically. If I must die with you, I will not deny you, Jesus. 
And then he kind of convinces the other disciples, they all say the same, oh yeah, Jesus, we're not going to deny you. Think about how foolish this is. We kind of get the bigger picture because we've been going through the gospel according to Mark. Jesus has never been proven wrong, right? Like his word is powerful and it's proven. He says a word and storms are calmed. He says a word and demons are cast out. He says a word and people are healed of diseases. But Peter almost kind of thinks he's like an exception. Like I know Jesus, every, every time that you said something, it happens. Like even when you told us to go prepare for the Passover meal and everything happened like exactly how you told us. But not this one. I will not deny you. He's still not seeing. He's still not hearing. And I think one of the points in this is that don't disagree with Jesus. I mean, just don't do it. It's not smart. Jesus is not like a, kind of like one of those arrogant friends that you have that says these ridiculous things and is very, like, resolute that this is the way it is. Like, Jesus is not like a, a news program that has biased on what political party they're part of. Like, Jesus is always true. Always. Don't disagree with him. I mean, you can, but you're just going to be humbled or it won't go well for you. Jesus always tells the truth, and in his pride, Peter thought he was the exception. He thought, I'm more reliable than the rest. I can handle it. Peter didn't realize how weak he really was. He didn't say in this moment, Jesus, only by God's grace, I will remain with you. He doesn't say, by God's grace, I'll be able to do this or that. Is that a phrase that we like to use? Or when we say something, are we, I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. I'm confident. I can emphatically say, this is going to happen. And if you try to live the Christian life this way, you will fail. You will be frustrated. You will live in shame and guilt and fear because you don't have what it takes to follow Jesus. You don't have what it takes to obey God. You don't have what it takes within yourself. You won't do it by trying hard enough by making promises that you can't keep, by saying something really passionately, proving your commitment to Jesus, I will not deny you, Jesus. Jesus says, the way to follow me is not by strengthening yourself, not by looking within, not by mustering up enough confidence, by trying hard enough, it's by losing yourself by humbling yourself. You don't have the confidence or you don't have to try to trust in yourself. You can trust in Jesus. You can pick up your cross. You can empty yourself. You can humble yourself. You live in humble dependence. And Jesus will not live, or excuse me, Peter will not live like this in humble dependence. He will not be emptied of his selfish ambition and self-centeredness until he's broken of his pride. See that in the next couple stories. But this is how the Christian faith begins. It begins with a confession that we don't have what it takes in us to make it. We don't have what it takes in us to be saved. We don't have what it takes in us to please God, to honor God, to be accepted by God, to obey God. Everything is by His grace alone and by trusting in what He has done. 
I love what a guy named uh, Jefferson Bethke says. He says, religion says do. Christianity, the gospel says done. The gospel is what God has done for us. And disciples recognize that God's love, pursuit of him or her, is completely by grace. It was all by his grace and his love. And this is, in fact, how disciples mature. They empty themselves continually. They identify self-centeredness and idols of pride and put them to death daily. They need to continue to identify this self-centeredness, this selfish ambition, and put it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the Word and by community. This is how we mature as disciples. There's a woman by the name of Jackie Hill Perry who beautifully describes this concept in her poetic lyrics in a song titled Better. She says, The struggle is beneath. It's deep. I'm shallow. It's It's like I want what I see, but I can't get past my shadow. My need competes with me. I want to battle. The snakes awake now. My trophies rattle. I'm done with riddles. The truth is simple. I wake up and Folgers fold me into something fickle. In other words, what's brewing is my ruin. It's simple. The music of my morning has no word. Hear the instrumental of lies of self-sufficiency. I'm living like I've been complete, tweeting before I speak to King or Mordecai with better dreams. It's better things than sight because I was made for this. If mirrors make me happier than Christ, then I'm an atheist. It's fact or fiction. That's good, man. Listen to that song. Better. The struggle is within. The struggle is the battle is the fight for your, to kill your pride. Fighting to believe that Jesus is better, that he knows better, that he satisfies better. We need to be humbling ourselves and be vulnerable in community and be identifying idols and continually living a life of repentance, bringing the gospel to bear on all of life. Mark then shifts gears and says that Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him kind of his inner circle, his three, Peter, James, and John. Mark records there, he said he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This word there is to be in anguish. Defined as to become subject to extreme mental or spiritual anguish and distress, sometimes to the point of losing one's composure. The strongest possible anguish, it could mean overwhelmed by horror. This is what Jesus is experiencing. It says there, he, my soul is very sorrowful. The word there could be described as crushed by grief. It says, even to death. Remain here and watch. And Jesus presents such a good demonstration of discipleship in this moment. Though a couple chapters earlier, he had taken his disciples up to the the mountain to be transfigured, to show his disciples his glory, kind of like the high he's up on this mountain. But Jesus also shows his disciples this low point where he says, I am sorrowful, I am crushed by grief even to death. This is important because I think the temptation for us is, as Sarah mentioned, we like to just show others our good sides. We like to take people up to show them the mountaintop. Come with us, brother. Let me show you my, my glory, my goodness on this mountain. Do you take others with you into the valley, though? Do you take people with you when you're, 
winning and struggling? Oftentimes what I've seen is that disciples are tempted and prone to isolate themselves when they're struggling, to distance themselves. They ruin the opportunity they have to experience the grace of the gospel of God in community, experience healing in relationships. I love that. Jesus wasn't afraid to show his disciples his worst. Mark records in verse 35, says, Go on a little further. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. This is demonstrating Jesus' humanity. We know that Jesus was fully divine, but he was also fully human. He suffered. He experienced anguish and pain. This prayer expresses Jesus' humility. Is there any other way, Father? If it were possible, this hour might pass from me. He falls on his face. Now, a normal posture for Jewish men in prayer was to, to pray standing up with hands raised. But in instances of extreme pleading and anguish, they would fall prostrate on their face. This is what Jesus does. He falls on his face. This hour refers to a time in which God would accomplish kind of the, the pouring out of his wrath, the pouring out of his judgment on sin. What will soon follow is Jesus' arrest, his suffering, and his execution. And even in this too, Jesus gives us another model, another example, what to do. When he's crushed by grief, he falls on his face in prayer. That's not one of the first things I do. I'm crushed by grief. I'm having a bad day. I'm feeling sad. Open up Netflix. Open up Facebook. Vent to Stephanie. Call my best friend. When you're crushed, when you're feeling sad, when you're in anguish, when you're overwhelmed by suffering, when you're tempted, when you have a bad day, what do you do? Who do you rely on? Who do you turn to? Do you call on your spouse? Do you call on your mom or your dad, your best friend? Jesus gives us a model. We fall on our face of the Father. Our Father who hears more clearly. Who is the only one who can really do anything about it. Mark gives us Jesus as our model of prayer. Mark describes Jesus praying at the beginning, the middle, and the end of his story. He lived a life of prayer. Let me just say, friends, that the Father can be relied on more than anyone else in your life. He can be trusted more deeply, more committedly. He is more comforting. In Him, there is the only true source of comfort and rest. When you're having a bad day, don't look to something or someone. Look to God. Fall on your face. And Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He confesses God's sovereignty. And he calls him this term, Abba, which is an endearing term. It was a term that Jewish children call their fathers, Abba. This is Aramaic word, uh, the language that was spoken by Jesus at that time. Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. Reference to God's wrath, as it would be poured out. God's anger that is what is destructive in the lives of his people and for his creation is sin, his anger at sin must be poured out. He is a just God. And Jesus is about to drink this cup, and he's feeling the weight of what is about to happen, his abandonment by 
the Father. The wrath that's about to be poured out on him. Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Is this something that is at the end of your prayers? God, I, I, I really want this, but your will be done. You know what's best. You're the good father. You're the sovereign one, the one who has all control. Jesus sub- submitted himself perfectly to the father. He knew that his father knew what was best. He lived a life of humble dependence demonstrated by this prayer. And one of the things that God has used most to reveal kind of my lack of doing this, my defiance, my trust in myself, me saying, God, not your will, but my will be done. That's how my prayers are ended most often, is my daughter Addison. Now she's one, and she is stubborn and hard-hearted, and she wants what she wants when she wants it. And she will pick up things that are dangerous and that are bad for her. And I will say, Addison, those aren't good. Can I please have those? Say, no. (laughs) Addison, please give me those. Those are not good for you. Those are dangerous. It's not for your good. No. What do I do? I have to go and remove them from her hands that are gripped closely. She falls on the ground and she has a meltdown. Like, Addison, I'm way smarter than you. I have way more experience than you. I can look at something that you're doing and say, okay, something bad's going to happen with this. Like, trying to walk off a stair, you're going to hurt yourself. And in these moments, I don't always get it at the time, and, you know, I'm, I'm so slow and hard-hearted as well, but God's been showing me how much I'm like Addison. The Father's trying to take something out of me that is not good for me. No. Mine. He does it tenderly and graciously. He calls me. I'm still defiant. I'm ripping those things. He has to rip them out of my hands. What do I do? Meltdown. Jesus submitted himself perfectly to the Father because he knew that he had a good father, a father who knew that was best for him. Let's submit ourselves to the father like this. And as Jesus is in this intense prayer, he's anguished, he's crushed by grief. He comes back and his buddies are asleep on the job. Some good friends he had, right? Says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? The guy who said, even if I will die, I will not Deny you, Jesus. Can't even stay for a, awake for an hour. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit refers to the human spirit. The spirit that said, oh yeah, Jesus, I'm right there with you. The spirit that's confident in self, that wants to follow Jesus, that's willing to follow Jesus, but the flesh that is so weak. I love what the ESV Study Bible says about this passage. It says, Well-intentioned believers can easily fail to fulfill their calling by merely giving in to various physical needs or desires. That's what Jesus is getting at here. The flesh is weak. Then he goes again and he prays. He says the same thing. 
comes back and disciples are asleep again. Their eyes were heavy. They did not know how to answer him. I mean, just imagine, Jesus comes, he's praised, he comes back to them, they fall asleep. First time he says, okay, guys, it's all right. Watch and pray. Don't fall into temptation. Goes and prays again, comes back, they're asleep again. And Mark records, the disciples, they don't know what to say. They don't really have an excuse. Do they? It's kind of funny how you contrast it to the the story of the transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured on the mountain and you remember that Peter was like completely dumbfounded. He didn't know what to say. Like, uh, why don't we just make some tents? Remember that? The disciples, one commentator said this, the disciples were dumb in the face of Jesus' glory and now were numb in the face of anguish. It reflects their complete lack of understanding about him. And he comes a third time and they fall asleep. I love how gracious Jesus is. So this passage is so comforting to me. He says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? He says, it is enough. The hour has come. Now, the enough could mean that my time of prayer is over or this time of anguish is over, my, my time of wrestling with the Father is over. It could mean that enough time has passed. It could mean that it is enough, meaning that Jesus knows the betrayer is at hand. He's coming soon. Mark records there, immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, the one who was his betrayer. He comes up to Jesus, and he gives him a kiss, the sign of who they were to arrest, and they seize Jesus. But it's not just the couple guys that come to Jesus. I mean, Mark describes that they have swords and clubs, and Jesus is kind of baffled by that. He says, really, guys? You come with swords and clubs? Am I a robber? I was with you guys day after day in the temple teaching, and you come to me with swords and with clubs? You came out at night in secret away from the city? So let the scriptures be fulfilled. And Jesus' promise to his disciples comes true. They all left and fled. They all fled. Jesus is completely abandoned. And those next couple of verses, they kind of seem strange at first when you read them, like talking about a, this young man who has a linen cloth on, and they seize him, but he kind of gets out of his clothes and runs away naked. I mean, at first glance at that, you're like, okay, what's going on here? Like, the, is this the Bible's first instance of streaking? I mean, <laughs> streakers, I mean, that usually occurs in important events, you know? Is this one of those times? Why is he included running away naked? What's the point of this? And There's a lot of ideas out there. A lot of different speculations on what's going on. Some people think, well, this is Mark's way of uh, putting himself in the story. Many people speculate this is, in fact, was Mark, the author of the gospel, who kind of out of modesty and shame didn't put his name in there. Because this, this description, this Part of the story about this man running away naked is, in fact, only found in the gospel according to Mark. Other people say that uh, Mark wanted to associate nakedness and shame uh, and give a clear image of anyone who betrays Jesus. Others claim that Mark was showing that 
the complete abandonment of Jesus. Like a young man would rather run away naked than be associated with Jesus. But I think there's kind of a deeper symbol and reference in this passage. Something deeper going on here that Mark wants us to see. I think he's showing how Jesus is the better Adam. How Jesus is better. Because we know Jesus will soon be stripped. He will be beat naked. And he does not fly. He does not run away. He is courageous when he is crucified. This reference of nakedness to me takes us back to our origins, to the book of Genesis, in which the scriptures recorded that God created everything good. Everything. A place of total flourishing. God with man, man with each other, man with creation. is perfect. But man was deceived and enticed by a serpent who convinced them that God didn't have the best intentions. He wasn't a good father. He was withholding something from them. And if they ate of this fruit, the one thing that God commanded them not to do, that's like the one rule. Don't break this rule. But he convinces them that if you eat of this fruit, you will have, you'll become like God. God doesn't want you to become like him. And they're enticed by sin, by the serpent. Adam and Eve are deceived. They disobeyed God's one rule in the garden and everything breaks. Genesis 3, the fall, everything breaks. Perfect fellowship with God was severed. Perfect fellowship with one another is severed. Fellowship with the creation is severed. And from that moment in Genesis 3, creation is broken and longing for renewal and restoration and reconciliation. Longing to be returned to how it once was. After Adam and Eve sin, they are aware of their shame and their guilt. They're aware of their nakedness, and they try to hide and cover. We have this in mind in the garden, what happens, and then we fast forward to this story. We look at Jesus. Jesus praying in Gethsemane, a word that means olive press, a place that was, in fact, a garden. It was in between, it was east of Jerusalem, it was near the Mount of Olives, near the the valley, Kidron, was a garden. A garden where Jesus, the Bible describes the second Adam, the better Adam, withstood temptation. Conquered temptation. This is what I think Mark is highlighting. Jesus is the better Adam. The new and better Adam who will bring a new and redeemed humanity, the church, back to the garden of a new and better Adam who is going to restore everything in the world that is to come, a place of re- renewed flourishing, of perfect fellowship with one another and with God and with creation. Jesus is the better Adam who said in the garden, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Adam didn't say that. He said, God, my will be done, not your will be done. In the garden, Adam sinned and covered his nakedness and shame and guilt. Jesus was stripped naked to take the shame and guilt of sinners. Paul writes to the church in Rome that although death came through Adam, one man, death came to all, in Christ, life comes to all. This free gift of righteousness that has been given to all. In Adam, there was death, but in Christ, there is life. 
In Adam, there is guilt, fear, and shame, and nakedness, but Jesus took that guilt, that shame, that nakedness on himself on the cross so that we can be clothed in righteousness. Jesus is the better Adam. He drank the cup of the wrath of God on the cross. He died, but he rose again. He conquered. He proved himself the victor, the king, so that all who might believe in him might experience new life would be transformed, would no longer experience guilt and fear and shame, would walk in newness of life. This is what Jesus does. This is what the new Adam does. He brings life. In Christ, we can walk with God in perfect fellowship. In Christ, we can call God our Father. Do you call God Father? Abba, Father. We can relate to him just as Christ does as children of God? We now have that authority, that intimacy with the Father. And in light of this, I think there's a couple implications for us this morning. As Jesus is in the new Adam, as Mark shows us in this passage how Jesus is better, in the face of denial, he does not deny us. In the face of abandonment, he does not abandon us. In the face of temptation, he conquers it for us. Number one, if we are believing the gospel, if we are in Christ, we live in humble dependence and seek a life of repentance. That's the first implication. We continually need to fight to kill our self-centeredness and pride to grow in repentance and faith in Jesus. Because if we're religious, what we are tempted to do is read this story and say, man, those disciples, I would never do that. If I walk with Jesus for three years, I would never deny him. I would never abandon him. If we have a right understanding of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, we know that we are those same disciples. We have all betrayed Jesus. We have all abandoned Jesus, yet he loves us and pursues us and died for us in the midst of that abandonment. Therefore, now we live in humility. We live trying to rid ourselves of this self-centeredness, this flesh, this pride, this ego. So think about it this week. How often do you think about others? Or is the person who consumes the most of your thoughts, the most of your ideas, the most of your affection, the God of Daniel? Worship him. He's so great. There's a part of me that says that, confesses that. Like even now as I'm preaching, I want you guys to love me so much. All the work that I do, I want it to pay off. I want you to worship me. I want everyone to listen to my podcasts so I can be great. I want to be worshipped. How often do you think about yourself? Let's try to keep a little note or keep it on your phone. Keep a little timer. Seriously, try it this week. It is so humbling. How often do you think about others? How often do you think about your gospel community, your church, your coworkers? How often do you reach out to them? Do you pray for them? Do you text them? Husbands, how often do you think about your wife and how you can serve her? Or is the first thought when you come home, baby, I'm home. Here I am. Man, I've had a long day. 
Wives, how often do you think about your husbands? How you can serve him? The question we have to ask ourselves is, how are we like Peter? How am I relying on myself and trusting in myself? Resting in my own strength. Number two, disciples submit and trust the sovereign father in the midst of suffering. They know that the Father has a plan and it is good in the midst of suffering. He knows what is best. And they can say, not our will, but your will be done. And if we need any kind of assurance of this, we need any kind of proof of how God is a good Father, how we can view suffering for good, we look to Jesus. We look to the cross. A lot of times people ask me this question. Yeah, you know, Christianity... Great and all, but there's one thing that has always held me up. How does a good God allow suffering? I don't understand that. And I just say, honestly, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say why, but I can trust that he does use it for good because I know Jesus. I look to the cross. I know that even in the midst of death and anguish of his own son, he brought life to, he offers life to everyone. This is what we can say to disciples. Father, you are good. You have a plan. And I trust you. I submit to you. Again, we ask our circle this question. Who do we rely on? Who do you run to? Who do we trust? Number three, disciples live in freedom and peace knowing that Jesus has crucified their shame, their guilt, and their fear and condemnation on the cross. The Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. God is not angry at us and, and like trying to force us to do things or manipulate us or make us feel bad when we sin. There's no condemnation. And I'm more convinced if we understand this love more, we understand this freedom more, we will just be reoriented radically transformed. There is no condemnation. We can live in freedom. We can live in peace. Every little bad thing that happens in our life, we don't go, oh, is God angry at me? Is he punishing me? Is he not happy with me? Number four, last and finally, disciples offer themselves as living sacrifices to God. their time, their resources, their lives. And we do this because we see and are transformed by Jesus' sacrifice. We do this because we know that Jesus is better. We do this because we know that Jesus is more satisfying. How, if someone were to look at your life or what are you believing in which Jesus is better? They would see that clearly. You are living in such a way that people are seeing Jesus is better. How or where might you be failing to believe that Jesus is better? How or where might you be failing to believe that, that Jesus is more comforting or satisfying? This kind of fleshes itself out, it works itself out in oversleeping. Because sleep is more comfortable than God. And overeating 
because food is more comforting than God. In overworking, not finding rest in God, in being lazy. How is Jesus better? Ask your spouse this if you're married. Ask your gospel community leader this. Ask them to look into your life. Reflect upon your own heart. This is how we're going to demonstrate the world, guys, that Jesus is better. Our testimony, by our love, by our sacrifice. I mean, we can't go around and confess, yeah, Jesus is the most satisfying, he's the best, he's better, and then live like, no, well, sports, family, food, sleep, work, careers, all that's better than Jesus. Jesus is kind of just like, he's somewhere in there, but he's kind of in the middle. I can't say practically how that works itself out because you'll have different lives. Maybe you all are, have different areas of, of idols in which you're tempted to believe, oh no, man, my TV is way more satisfying than God. <laughs> my Netflix show is way better than Jesus. Now, if you don't think Jesus is, is satisfying or better, we come back to the gospel. Because this takes, it takes miraculous, like it takes the work of God. It takes what the Bible calls new birth, regeneration, a work of the Holy Spirit transforming us. Because, I mean, I'll talk with, with young guys and say, you know, guys, it, you're looking at pornography, you're engaging, and, and you're turning and relying on alcohol. I mean, for me to say that Jesus is better than alcohol for them is like, no. There's no way Jesus is better. Because it takes faith. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no way Jesus is better than porn. He is. Jesus is better. It's like, if you get one thing from any of my sermons, all of my sermons, just know that Jesus is better. He is more satisfying. He's more comforting. Trust me. Believe me. If you want to know Jesus, I want to talk to you. If you want to see how does this really work itself out in your life, how do I practically become satisfied in God and experience true joy and comfort and live like Jesus shows us and models it in submission to the Father? I want to talk to you. I'd love to talk with you. I love Jesus. I love talking about him. So as we, as we close and we observe something that's called the Lord's Supper, if at any point you have questions, you want to get together, you want to talk after the gathering, I want to talk about Jesus with you. We're going to move time into a time now of, of worship through what's called the Lord's Supper, communion. This is a time where every week at the Mountain Church, we remember the gospel. We remember the words of the gospel spoken over us, Christ's body broken for you, given for you. Remember the words of the gospel, Christ's blood shed for you. We remember that all of what we believe is on what Christ has done that he has secured it, he has accomplished it. There's no guilt, no shame. There's freedom only in Christ. We take an opportunity to confess of sins and to identify areas of our heart in which we have not believed the gospel. But this is also a time where we celebrate this, celebrate Jesus dying for us, and we thank God for dying for us, and we anticipate his soon return where he's going to come and right every wrong and bring about the new earth and return us to Eden, where we will be with God forever. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a gracious and good God, that you are a pursuing God. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to do everything on the cross in our place. Thank you for offering salvation to us as a free gift by grace alone through faith alone. Father, as I pray that as a church we move deeper into this reality, into this confession, that you would transform us, that you would free us from the sin, from our flesh, from our idols, from our self that clings so closely. Father, I ask that others might come to know you through the gospel being proclaimed in us and through our community, through our love. Father, I know that Des Moines is hurting and broken, that there are many who are looking for satisfaction, for comfort, for pleasure in things that will never satisfy. Would you cross our paths? Would you bring them to us? Would you send us to them? that you might be glorified and that we might receive the joy and that your name might be magnified and multiplied throughout our church and throughout uh, Des Moines to the ends of the earth. We love you, Father, and we ask that this is a time that's pleasing to you and honoring of you. And we submit to your leadership as our good Father. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen.